So thank you very much, friends. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, it's no surprise what they've been doing. So here we go. Our, uh, <laughs> our subject tonight, um, our drug of choice, as it were, is pharmaceutical ecstasy. And Dr. Rick Doblin, the founder of MAPS, uh, will be on uh, as our special guest. Now, I spoke, with, uh, I spoke with Rick earlier today for, to record the interview, and uh, I thought it was going to be maybe 30 minutes or so, but uh, we ran well over an hour. So what we're going to do is break the interview down in three parts. And um, as you're listening to each part, and if you'd like to uh, make a comment, please uh, send us an email because we do want to hear uh, what you have to say. You can email me at daniel at theopiumden.net, and there's also an email Daniel button on the homepage of the uh, website. So we do want to hear from you, and uh, we're hoping that uh, you enjoy the show tonight. And if you include your phone number on that email, uh, which we prefer, we'd love to uh, give you a call and and put you on the air. So uh, before we get into the interview with Rick, which there's a lot of good stuff there, and I'm sure those that know the, of you that know him but have never heard him uh, will enjoy it. But I want to make uh, give you my two cents on what I uh, think about pharmaceutical ecstasy. Um, I did MDMA the first time in 1971 uh, when it was pure pharmaceutical and not prohibited. And I will tell you that it was one of the most enjoyable experiences of my life. So let's get into the interview with uh, Dr. Rick Doblin, and we'll get, the, uh, get that set right now. So enjoy. Okay, sorry for the dead space, but we're going to uh, cue that up, and let's start the interview. Getting... Who brought the opium? <laughs> Who brought the opium? Well, I'll tell you what, when, I, when you didn't answer the call at 3 o'clock, I smoked the rest of it. <laughs> that served me right for being late. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. <laughs> well, I know you, uh, you're busy getting ready for Seder tonight, but uh, I want to thank you yeah. for taking the time to speak with us. Well, it's my pleasure. Well, great. Well, all our, all our listeners are uh, waiting to hear how your MDMA clinical trials are progressing. But first, I'd like you to share with everyone uh, how you first became acquainted with MDMA and how you came to believe in its therapeutic value. Ah, well, that's a story I'm happy to relate. Uh, it took place in 1982, and I was an undergraduate. I had actually started college in 1971. And I was, you know, a very idealistic person. I was a draft resistor. I was expecting to go to jail. And, you know, I wasn't going to run to Canada or anything. I was so, I was anticipating going to jail. And I ended up, um, being introduced to LSD. I went to a new college. It's the Honors College of the State of Florida. And it was a private school then. It was experimental, no grades. Everybody had to do a senior thesis. It was, very much focused on um, the student's curiosity is the most important thing. 
And my curiosity led me to LSD. And my experiences with LSD were more than I could handle, but they were also somehow essential and important and also um, educational. And, and it helped me to realize that I was extremely an unbalanced person, overdeveloped intellectually and underdeveloped emotionally. And it seemed like being in school was sort of continuing that overdevelopment intellectually. So I decided I would drop out and try to get better at tripping. And I felt that I had to also um, get more grounded, get more integrated. And, and so that process took me 10 years. Wow. And I, I built built houses. I um, took small amounts of LSD now and then to help me work through some of the other experiences that had been uh, more overwhelming before. And, and so during this 10-year period, I, I always knew I was going to go back to college and I was going to study to be a psychedelic therapist. And that's informally, in a sense, what I was doing for those 10 years that I was dropped out. I was um, reading books about psychedelics. I was tripping now and then, building up my strength. And after 10 years, I finally was ready to go back to college. And I started where I had gone before, at a new college. And as soon as I was starting to do the planning, I was just really frustrated because there was a workshop with Dan Groff at Esalen, month-long workshop on the mystical quest. And I was like, damn, I would really rather be there than at school. And then I figured, hey, this is a new college. I should be able to get credit for off-campus study. And I, I was able to work that out. So I went to California. During this 10-year period, I had had this sense that just as I was waking up to psychedelics, in 71, 72, the research was being shut down. The Controlled Substances Act came in in 1970. So I felt like I came on the scene too late. And I thought that it was pretty much destroyed by the laws and the repression and that research really had been shut down all over the world. And so I was kind of solitary in Sarasota, Florida, and doing my work and reading. And when I went to Esalen, I had this tremendous... Uh, opportunity to discover that there had been an underground psychedelic culture the whole time. I just had not been aware of it. And that the psychedelic culture had actually focused around therapy, focused around spirituality, and had started exploring MDMA that had been used since the middle 70s. That By the time I learned about it in 1982, there was hundreds of psychiatrists and therapists working with it all over the country under the code name Adam, and doing it in a way that was quiet and wasn't attracting the attention of the media or the DEA or anything like that. And when I first saw it, though, I was really underwhelmed. Uh, I mean, I was told about it in terms of people communicating better, feeling happy, things like that. And I was like, well, I think I can communicate pretty fine, and I already feel happy, and you know, I saw a couple of people taking it. It didn't seem dramatic the way LSD or psilocybin or mescaline seemed dramatic. You know, they were able to carry on a conversation. and So I, I really, from the outside in, I missed the profound subtleties of it. But I decided I would take some home and do it with my girlfriend when I got back home. And when, I, when we did that, um, it was just tremendous. Uh, it, it felt like um, liberating 
deeper levels of love that didn't feel like they were artificial or for from the drug. The, the drug opened us up to levels inside ourselves that were real and genuine. And it, it was a profound experience for me. And the fact that it was legal, and I had learned also that there was already starting to be people marketing it as ecstasy. There was already a public scene that was developing with it, which meant that inevitably it would be criminalized. So this time now I had a sense that I wasn't behind the times, that I was actually um, a little bit ahead of the times, and that we could predict that since we were still in the midst of a raging drug war, and you know we still are now. now some things never change. Well, the Rockefeller drug laws have just ended in New York. Things are changing. True. In a really good way. And, you know, it's slow and it's gradual, but it's picking up momentum. So I feel that the the hard, compassionless, culture warrior, symbolic politics um, doesn't carry the day as much as it did before. And so I think it's a real time of potential, of opportunity, and that if we can approach it incrementally, carefully, that we're not going to have the backlash that we had in the 60s. That, that's, you know, we have the lessons of the 60s. We saw you go too far too fast and society freaks out and strikes back. And also you self-define as a counterculture and you just generate massive uh, fear and pressure. Well, that's so, true. And, and uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you there, but you were, you no. were saying about your inner discovery on your first experiences with MDMA. Is that, is that what led you to believe that there would be a therapeutic value for this, uh, for this substance? Yes, yes. I mean, I had heard, you know, about, and I had talked to people that had been using it for years in therapy. So, you know, I heard those stories. And it, was your, and it was your experience that validated those stories and decided uh, and made you decide to move forward in that direction? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, I, I also um, worked with friends who were going through different emotional problems, including one uh, woman who was suicidal. And we worked with MDMA. This was in 84. And it really helped her to come to terms. We did an MDMA session and then an MDMA-LSD combination session. The LSD-MDMA combination, the MDMA session was like a um, survey of the layers of trauma of her life. So it it was just so much pain in one life. Um, And then we felt like maybe we'd go to something stronger and, and that might help her break out of it. And the LSD turned out to be too strong, too powerful, too scary. And so it was all perceived symbolically. She was in a foreign planet and there was, you know, incredibly hot sun and she was baking and didn't dry up and die. And, you know, but it, but it was all alien and, and, you know, too much. And what, what we thought, you know, is that maybe if we um, gave her half a dose of MDMA, that that might ground her a little bit, open up um, her ability to handle the the pain, and, and that, that that's what happened. We, it was. We did a half a, set, a dose of MDMA, and that led to the the breakthrough. And that was, um, you know, almost 25 years ago. 
and she's now a therapist. She's worked on MDMA therapy projects. What that did is it turned it from, you know, being on this alien planet to being um, right after she was raped and beaten up and left mm. out in the hot sun on the ground. And so it, it turned from symbolic to a memory. The LSD gave her the, the core feelings of this deep trauma, but it was too much. And the MDMA helped her to integrate it and to personalize it and to then look at it. The breakthrough, actually, was when she started talking about this guy that had raped her and that it was um, a date rape situation. And she had trusted this guy. And, and I asked her, well, you know, well, what did you like about it? And as soon as I said that, she um, just sort of involuntarily threw up. Yeah. And because she had the, part of this connection to suicide was that she could no longer trust herself. You know, she had thought that this guy would be safe. And he turned out to be somebody who brutalized her. And if you can no longer trust yourself to discern you know, in the search for love, then there's um, really in your mind the hope that you're going to find it. And so that, that sort of leads to this sense, well, then might as well commit suicide. And so to start differentiating again, to start trusting her judgment, to look at this guy had liked animals. And so she was able to sort of say, well, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a person that will be kind to people. So well, she started I'm... gaining her capacity again. Well, I'm glad that uh, that that happened for her, and I'm hope and I'm I'm glad to hear that she's doing well. So let's let's fast forward and uh, tell all of our listeners what's going on in Israel with your MDMA clinical trials. Yeah. Well, to back off a little bit further, what we're doing, MAPS is basically a non-MAPS multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies. Say that which I started in this. <laughs> yeah, it's the um, I've been teased for it being the uh, the nonprofit with the most syllables in its name <laughs> in the drug reform movement, and so we say maps for short. In a way, it's uh, to provide kind of intellectual, emotional maps to consciousness. And we're basically a nonprofit psychedelic and medical marijuana pharmaceutical company, and so our goal is to develop credible scientific research approved by regulatory agencies using standardized outcome measures operating to the same or higher as levels as the basic pharmaceutical industry. So our first study with MDMA for post-traumatic stress uh, concluded in September last year in the United States. And that was 21 subjects, took us four years and a million dollars. And we have two uh, veterans from the Iraq War. Most are people, uh, women with sexual assault. And the results are outstanding. And we work with people. They have to have failed on both pharmacotherapy. The only drugs that are approved by the FDA for PTSD are Zoloft and Paxil, SSRIs. So people have to have failed on SSRIs, meaning that they had them but it didn't give them enough relief. And then they have to have failed on a limited number of different kinds of psychotherapy that have been shown to be effective for PTSD. Now, do you think that's so legitimate, or do you think those are roadblocks that are placed in your way on your uh, on your research quest? Well, you know, I think that we had to do that because 
there was such massive, um, uh, it's hard to put these words together, but massive scientific propaganda uh, put out by the National Institute on Drug Abuse about the neurotoxicity of MDMA. One dose, permanent brain damage, and, oh, of course we don't see it, but, you know, it'll show up 30 years from now. So uh, manipulated brain scans. Um, I just was um, writing to a funder today about um, brain scans that were shown on MTV, 48 Hours, and Oprah, a woman who was a heavy MDMA ecstasy user, also used other drugs, and um, she was showing, she was going around the country showing a spec scan that uh, looked at cerebral blood flow that, that showed massive holes throughout her brain. It was a totally manipulated image. So well, not, not we, only is the, is, was the image manipulated, but the the uh, doctrine behind it uh, wasn't wasn't all that sound. Because my understanding is that uh, when uh, I think Ricard did his uh, studies, he Ricard, uh, yeah. interviewed people that had you know just said they had done MDMA or ecstasy. But there was no way to validate if they are, if the drug they did was pure, adulterated, or even contained MDMA at all. So doesn't that tend to invalidate all of those original studies? Um, somewhat. I mean, uh, but not completely. I mean, because when you're dealing with studying people who've done illegal drugs, you know, you're always going to be faced with that situation that you don't know exactly what they did. And that uh, a lot of times MDMA ecstasy is mixed with methamphetamine, cocaine, um, caffeine, dextromethorphine, all, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And so... But, but you know, it, it's the best you can do. So, you know, unless you do clinical research. And clinical research through the FDA throughout the 80s was blocked by right. George Riccardi and others who were trying to claim that it was so dangerous. They knew that it was so dangerous without even doing the research that you couldn't do the research. It was unethical to do the research. So when it came time for the post-traumatic stress disorder study, we needed to design it in such a way so that it would be very difficult for anybody who was trying to do a sincere scientific evaluation of risks and benefits to say no. So by working with people who were treatment failures, who have no options from the traditional medicine, you can accept a higher risk because they're suffering, nothing else is happening, and therefore, because they're in such pain, um, you know, the risk-benefit ratio is different if they're treatment failures than if they're not. Actually, it turned out to be a tremendous benefit to us because when you work with the worst of the worst, the people that are really, really um, severe and nothing else is working for, they tend to be, on the outcome measures, they start out really, really high so that if you can, if you do have a technique that helps them, you'll get substantial drops in their outcome measures, and then your statistics will be better. So that if you work with people that are only mildly uh, post-traumatic stress, you know, how much of a benefit can you get? You know, they already start out, you know, in the middle. You can still do great work, with, and, and you can still get statistically significant results. But if you happen to have the combination of a treatment that works and a patient population that is severely uh, disabled by whatever their uh, clinical condition is, you know, that's, that's what you want because then you get the best statistics and you can really demonstrate. So fortunately, MDMA is like that, that it offers such a unique advantage to 
trained and skilled psychotherapists who know how to help people work through their pain and work through their process, that people who have been stuck for years, in our Israel study, now, so, so let me, in our Israel study, we just treated someone who's had post-traumatic stress disorder from the Six-Day War in 1967. Oh, man. This was over 40 years. And he's doing much better. Do you and, attribute you know, that directly that, to the, uh, I'm sorry, do you attribute that directly to the MDMA therapy? Obviously, he hasn't been able to have access to that over the decade, and this is a recent phenomenon for him. Do you, do you believe or do you credit the MDMA for his uh, progress? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that's the nature of scientific research, where you try to eliminate all the variables but one. So when people are in our study, what we say to them is that if they're on other psychiatric medications, they have to stop. They have to taper off of them. If they're going to a therapist, they can, they should stay with that therapist, but they should not increase or decrease the amount of time that they're seeing them. So we try to make it so that there's no other medications that, you know, could be claimed to have helped. And in fact, you know, when you administer MDMA in combination with a lot of psychiatric medicines, it, it mutes the effect of the MDMA. So, People tend to withdraw from their other medications. The symptoms actually can sometimes get worse, which right. means that things are coming to the surface. And if you can create a safe, supportive environment around that, that's actually what you want because then people are motivated to try to work hard and to, they can't escape, and they're trying to deal with rather than run from. So for this particular person who had had PTSD for over 40 years, it was pretty clear that once we introduced the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy program and he started doing better, that it was due to that. Now, you need to do that with large numbers of people. Well, and, of course. You, know, you say, so what we're doing now is what's called Phase two pilot studies. And these are exploratory studies, small numbers of subjects, and you're refining your method of therapy uh, we're evaluating different doses. We're working on methodology of research to try to figure out how to do a double-blind study. We're looking at side effects. And we're also uh, looking at how or whether, I should say, we can successfully teach therapy teams to help patients in wildly different cultural contexts. How much of this is universal? How much of this is, you know, peculiar to Americans or Canadians or, or what? So that the other part of it is that growing up Jewish, growing up um, in the shadow of the Holocaust, you know, I was raised to see Israel as an important uh, uh, an important safety mechanism and an important expression of Jewish identity. Uh, you don't have to be religious to feel that. It was more of a cultural thing. And oh, so absolutely. I was raised to try to make contributions. And... You know, I was like most kids. I rebelled in Hebrew school. I didn't pay attention. And, Shame you know, on but you. I, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I started um, in the 90s, in the early 90s, thinking that maybe this interest that I was developing in psychedelics could form the basis of a contribution that I could make to Israel. And, well, I think without so question, 90s, you are uh, without question you are making a, uh, a contribution uh, not only to Israel but all of those who uh, suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. At the uh, at the well, top of... Go ahead. 
Well, I should say that, that as part of this sort of sense of making a contribution to Israel, that's led to our study in Jordan. So that we're in the protocol approval stage right now at the military hospital in Amman. And it's my goal there to, uh, you know, sponsor this. It's, it's just tremendous. It's, it's um, you know, it's the first study with MDMA where documents are translated into Arabic. And it's to try to build uh, communications between the Israeli and the Jordanian psychiatrists and therapists and then eventually between the Jordanian and Israeli patients, and to try to help heal the trauma of war from both sides of the divide. So it's just very, very important um, to me. And what what happened about um, four weeks ago, a MAPS donor called me up and said that um, he wanted to make a donation. And, um, you know, I, we have an Ibogaine study, Ibogaine in the treatment of opiate addiction in Mexico. Right. So well, that's a very interesting study. subject that, that as well. Maybe we can do a, another show on that, but uh, that's a very good thing. You know, I talked to him about that. It's a, it was a $30,000 study. I had just a, a week. Well, um, I hope you enjoyed the, uh, the first segment here. I'm sorry that it was kind of a uh, fast, kind of sloppy edit, but we didn't anticipate uh, having Rick on the on the phone for this length of time. So uh, we're going to give everybody an opportunity if they'd like. Uh, we've got a couple of uh, emails here, and we're hoping that we'll get some more. So we're going to address a couple of those comments, and uh, in a couple of minutes we'll uh, get back uh, with Rick. So this will be your um, time to take a pause or... Uh, whatever you'd like, but we have a we have our first comment here. Well, actually, it wasn't the first comment; it was the second one that came across. And uh, this is from this is from um, let's see here, Susan in Columbus, Ohio. Oh, Ohio. Uh, Susan says that uh, she uh, she first took. Well, actually, she said it was the only time. Um, she took ecstasy, was back in uh, 2001, and um, she didn't like it uh, very much, but the, uh, the people uh, she, were with, she was with uh, seemed to enjoy it. And, uh, and Susan's comment or question is, um, is there something wrong with me because I didn't like it or, or, or what? And she puts a, a few question marks there. And Susan says, uh, P.S., please don't call me because I don't want to talk on the phone. So to, uh, to Susan, I say that um, I'm sorry that you had a, an unfortunate experience with, um, with ecstasy, but uh, I'm not surprised. Uh, you say that you uh, did it back in 2001, and at that time, uh, ecstasy was uh, very prevalent and, and very popular in the, uh, in the young culture. And because it was a prohibited drug, it was bootlegged. Uh, it was a, probably a bootleg MD or ecstasy tablet. And um, you, re you had uh, some uh, impurities and some drugs that were included in, in that pill that probably caused your, uh, your discomfort. And with regards to, uh, with regards to your friends who uh, enjoyed it, the, uh, the possibility there is that... Uh, you know, you can have a handful of, of ecstasy tablets, and two or three of them will be MDMA. Uh, 
a couple of them will have just a little bit of MDMA in them, and uh, the rest of them can be uh, completely bogus. So I would think that uh, more than likely, Susan, when you, uh, when you did ecstasy in 2001, your, uh, your particular uh, pill uh, was, uh, was adulterated and uh, contained very, very little MDMA. And I, I'm sorry that you didn't have a good experience, but I certainly appreciate uh, you, uh, you writing in and, and, and sharing that with us. And uh, we have... Um, no, I can't read that one. <laughs> I mean, you can only do so much. I know it's the internet, but we have another. Uh, the, the other comment that we've had. Uh, this comes from a uh, Skip Wiley in uh, Portland, Oregon. Uh, Portland, Oregon, nice, nice town. And uh, Skip just writes in to say that uh, he's done ecstasy um, a number of times and. He uh, finds it to be. Uh, he he had a very uh, a very good, uh, very good experience. So that uh, counterbalances uh, Susan's experience and goes to show that uh, I guess Skip, you got uh, you got lucky, and uh, you don't say if you uh, if you still um, do it or not. But uh, I appreciate you uh, sending in your comment, and I'm glad you found it to be. Uh, a very, uh, very good experience. So uh, what we're going to do now, uh, thank you for the comments, we're going to move back into our interview with Rick. So if Dan uh, pushes the right button here, we're going to go back into it. So here we go. A week before that, I'd gotten uh, someone to say that he would give a $15,000 matching grant. And so uh, this fellow said that um, he, he would match that. He, he had actually gone to the IBM clinic and for personal growth reasons, and it, it had helped him a lot. And then he said, well, what else you got? And I'm like, well, the most idealistic, you know, far-fetched, you know, hard to actually succeed at, but maybe the biggest payoff is the study in Jordan that we're trying to start with the Jordanian uh, security forces, army, police, firefighters, stuff like that. And then he said, well, you know, how much does that cost? And I said, well, that whole study will be about 85000 And it didn't take him more than a second. He's like, well, all right, I'll do that too. <laughs> Good for him. And we were just in Jordan. Um, uh, Valerie Mojeko and Josh Holmstrom and I, they both are part of MAPS's clinical monitoring research team. So we've had people from Novartis, a pharmaceutical company, who've trained our staff in evaluating and uh, monitoring the data so that it will survive critical review by FDA and other regulatory authorities. And so we were in Jordan and um, doing a site visit, meeting the Jordanian psychiatrist and um, some of the leading psychiatrists in Jordan. And, and the donation arrived while we were there in Jordan into the our bank account in the U.S. And, and so... We're going to have a training program. We now have these phase two pilot studies. The U.S. one has completed, but we're getting ready to start a new one, a small one, just in veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan. Well, I think um, we that, have studies. Uh, that, that will be uh, of uh, particular interest to everyone, and perhaps uh, because it's uh, here in the, in the country, we'll get 
uh, more positive media attention uh, than we're getting now with your uh, studies outside the country. At yeah, the, I think that's true. And, you know, the ironic thing is that in Jordan, um, there's about half a million Iraqi refugees in Jordan, many of them with post-traumatic stress disorder. So we're hoping to enroll some of them. And we've met a young um, Iraqi uh, psychiatric med student at the University of Jordan, and he's going to try to help us recruit um, some Iraqi refugees. So on the one hand, we'll be treating Iraqi refugees with PTSD, and on the other, we'll be treating American soldiers who have PTSD from being in Iraq. And, you know, we're treating, you know, Israelis from the different wars. And, you know, there's just an enormous reservoir of trauma and pain that underlies a lot of world and social and country relations. And if we can start trying to tap into that and help people process that and see more clearly and get some hope that they can break the patterns of the past. Um, so we, we have a study underway in Switzerland that's been going for a couple of years and should finish in a year. We have this Israeli study that's in the early stages. And we've just, uh, about a month ago, got permission from Health Canada for a study that's going to take place in Vancouver. Great. And we're working with um, a team in Spain to try to get a study funded and uh, up and running by early 2010. So these are our phase two safe um basically our phase two safety and efficacy pilot study. We anticipate two more years of that. And then we go to the FDA and the European Medicines Agency, and we say, here's our data. Here is how we evaluate the risks. Here's how we evaluate the benefits. Here's the design of the large-scale phase three study. And we need two of those that we would like to do. And if these studies work out, then we want permission to market this drug as a prescription medicine. So you negotiate what the design of the study is based upon your preliminary research in the phase two study. And we can basically say that, you know, the first study in the U.S., Michael and Annie Mithofer were the male-female co-therapist team within 21 subjects. It was tremendous results. Um, we're going to have about 80 or so subjects in our phase two study. And then we'll probably need um, another 600 in order to make MDMA into a medicine. And well, we're anticipating that, that, I'll say that, that that will probably take us 10 years from now and $10 million. Well, that's the question I wanted to address to, to you next, Rick. Um, making MDMA a uh, legal and prescribed medication here in the States. Now, you also believe that um, MDMA has uh, great potential for individuals who are otherwise healthy. And I'm wondering yeah, yeah. if we were to um, legalize MDMA as a medicine, as we're trying to legalize marijuana as a medicine, how do you believe those who do not qualify from a medical standpoint to utilize MDMA, how, how do you think that would become available to you know, people like me or others who enjoy it um, on a recreational basis, but also get the same um, the same type of result of feeling better about themselves in the world. How do you think that's going to translate to the uh, to the healthy market? Okay, that's a super great question. Well, thank you. Um, let, let, let me say that um, from the time that I was 17 and 18 and 71, 72. 
where I decided to be um, an underground psychedelic therapist. And then uh, Jimmy Carter pardoned all the draft resistors, and I could start thinking of, in 76, and I could start thinking of a above-ground career. Um, my effort was going to go to learning how to do psychotherapy and then learning how to do psychotherapy outcome research. In 87, when I finally graduated New College, and I tried to get into clinical psych PhD programs, and I was honest about how I wanted to do MDMA research for my dissertation, um, despite the fact that I had studied really hard and had good grades on the GREs, good scores and all that, um, nobody in any of these graduate schools was ready to say yes, to let me in and do that. And that, that meant that this sort of 16, 17 years that I had been working in this direction had reached the end. And for me, a lot of times when I'm at a dead end, if I smoke some pot and think about what's going on, I can kind of come up with a strategy or, or at least an attempted strategy. So what I recognize is that the politics was in the way of the science, and therefore I should switch to study the politics. I want too much too fast, and I need to switch. So I applied and got accepted into the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, and that's where I got my master's and my PhD. So that was sort of an introduction to say that just like individuals have um, psychiatric illnesses and pathologies, so do cultures. Cultures can be insane in different ways and, you know, in the grips of uh, fear and paranoia. And so what your question is about is, you know, how do we move from providing medicines to people with designated illnesses in a context where our society is more open to uh, medical use? I mean, that's what we see with marijuana. The medical use of marijuana is being accepted and legalized by states well before non-medical use. Uh, how do we move to where a society can acknowledge and accept that these drugs are tools, their benefits or their harms depend on how they're used, that, that like a war on drugs is giving all these properties to It's like giving your own power away. You're sort of saying you're investing these are evil drugs or these are bad drugs. And so what another part of our work, my work, and this is sort of by talking to you, public education, big, big part of it, is that I think that a more healthy society, where MAPS is working towards is precisely what you were asking for, a society that has successfully integrated psychedelics in some form or another for medical use, therapeutic use, religious, spiritual use, uh, personal growth, recreational use, all different forms. And that each of these different kind of contexts carries different kind of risks, different kind of benefits, and we need sort of different social policies to try to, you know, get the best outcomes. And we need to do it in a larger context that respects human rights and says that the fundamental human right is to explore your consciousness. It's, it's prior to the freedom of thought. It's prior to the freedom of speech to experience your own consciousness from different perspectives. And, and I agree. And, and, and the, the, the point that I was trying to make, do you believe that there should be a, a dual track of research, not just for the medicinal use, but for the recreational use as opposed to recreational use? My, yes. my fear is uh, that if we take marijuana... MDMA, and even LSD in the study of cluster headaches. If we designate these drugs as medicines only, 
Uh, I see one of, I see a couple of outcomes. One will have a, a massive outbreak of illness, people getting sick <laughs> to get these medicines, or we'll have a continued prohibition against the, uh, the non-medical use of these substances. So we do we need a well, dual track uh, well, I research think that, here? Yeah. Well, I don't know that the research track is different, but the time frame. If you can expand your time frame and think about social change as happening, um, in generation segments of, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. So that we are going to have a phased opening in our culture. We are a paranoid culture that has been massively disinformed, misinformed by various interest groups who are some sincere, some just promoting fear in order to, you know, have more jobs at prisons. Uh, a lot of people like authoritarian states that where we are, we are, we meaning the, the people trying to look at the beneficial uses of these substances, we are so massively outnumbered and outfinanced that there is hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars in anti-drug advertising. And that's what the culture is mostly responding to. So how do we counteract that? In our culture, scientific research has uh, currency and gets widely reported in the media. So the research that we're doing with MDMA and post-traumatic stress disorder, we have successfully established that people can take MDMA a couple times in therapy and there is no observable brain damage. Oh, absolutely we do. not. Well, well, but see, you say absolutely not, right? But there's a lot of people that have heard and believe that MDMA will cause holes in their brain, or MDMA will drain their spinal fluid, or MDMA will cause them to somehow or other be knocked off balance. Well, fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, at, a cer- at, a certain, at a certain point, we have to look at those who are ignoring science and staying with the ideology of prohibition and just laugh at them and say, you know, you're full of shit. We have tried arguments well, and see, we've tried debates. A lot of them don't and- know that. You see... What I'm trying to say is that the research in the therapeutic uses and the research in the medical marijuana gives us a platform. We It's called earned media. You know, I'm not paying you right now to be on the show. You know, I, I was talking to National Geographic TV. They're doing a spe- today, earlier today, they're doing a special on a special documentary on LSD and psilocybin. And I'm not paying them. They're not paying me. But millions they, of people are going to need any subjects to help them out? I'd volunteer. <laughs> Where are you located? <laughs> Any, anywhere they want me, Rick. Anywhere they want me. <laughs> okay, that's uh, that completes part two of our uh, interview with Rick Doblin. I hope everybody is enjoying it as much as as I am. Uh, Rick has some very very excellent insights, and uh, I think his his. Um, Opening up to us about his uh, his early uh, his early youth and the difficulties that uh, that he had and how uh, his um, experiences with uh, LSD and later on MDMA um, helped him work work through some of that. So we've got a few more comments here. I really appreciate it and uh, makes me feel good that we've got some folks out there uh, out there listening. So we have um, a question here from Christopher. I'm going to ruin your last name, Christopher. Christopher Reinestan. I'm, I'm hoping that's right. 
And uh, Chris is from uh, Virginia Tech. And Chris uh, writes in, uh, Daniel, can you buy Afghan poppy legally or legitimately? And if so, uh, does Rick buy it for research purposes? Well, uh, Chris, um, I can't, uh, I can't um, address buying Afghan poppy legitimately unless you mean in Afghanistan. But uh, there are, uh, the, you, you can grow um, Afghan uh, poppies. So not necessarily Afghan poppies, but you can uh, grow poppies. Uh, the, uh, the poppies that are used for the opium base for many of uh, the pharmaceutical companies that produce morphine, uh, that opium is bought uh, legitimately on the open market or the regulated market in uh, India and Turkey. Uh, at this point, Afghan, uh, po- Afghan opium uh, is not uh, legitimately available, but the, the point you make is a good one. If we were to uh, repeal prohibitions against, uh, against all drugs, we could, um, at that point, buy all the uh, opium that uh, Afghanistan could produce and uh, pay them uh, much more handsomely than the drug lords and the warlords pay them now. And that could, uh, that could provide um, a, uh, uh, an agricultural-based uh, commodity to help uh, stabilize uh, the Afghan economy. And uh, as far as research purposes, uh, Rick and uh, the folks at MAPS uh, do not uh, have any uh, research programs going on at uh, this time uh, with, uh, with opium. But I certainly appreciate your comment and uh, your interest. And if I didn't uh, address your question completely enough, feel free to, um, to uh, send me another email. And for all those out there that uh, sending emails, if you include your phone number, as I mentioned earlier, um, we will be able to uh, give you a call. Oh, wait a minute. It's got to pop back in from Christopher. Let's see what Christopher has to say. He goes, oh, shit. <laughs> I would, but my phone is out of battery and at my university's computer lab. No lie. Well, I wouldn't expect you to lie to us, Chris, but uh, thanks again for, uh, for uh, sending in your comment. Uh, now, we have another question here from um, Kevin. Um, Kevin doesn't say where he's from and didn't uh, include his phone number. And uh, Kevin's uh, question or comment is... Uh, from what I can understand here, uh, is primarily about the uh, protocols uh, on how MDMA would become um, a standard treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, I just heard a noise, Dan, it went blip, blip, like we just went dead. Is that possible? Are we still alive? Well, I'm going to keep talking, all right, but uh, I heard a funny noise. Oh, we're good. I'm sorry. So anyway, maybe I go away. Um, the, uh, I think Rick, uh, Rick did, uh, did address that on how uh, MDMA is, is being protocoled for, uh, for post-traumatic stress disorder. So um, thank you for your uh, comment, Kevin, and uh, I certainly appreciate you um, tuning in. So now we have, we're going to take one more, uh, one more call here. And uh, this is, oh, well, this is from a, from a guy that I actually know, Brian Bennett. And uh, Brian has given his uh, phone number, so we're going to give we're going to give Brian a call and uh, 
hope hope this works out. This will be our first outbound call. So, um, what do I need? <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, what do we need to do, Dan, to get uh, to get to? Okay, just hit that right there. Okay. So I'm going to make the uh, phone call to uh, Brian Bennett. I hope you're uh, waiting for us, Brian. So here we go. Um, here, four, three. Oh, I shouldn't read your phone number out over the internet. So, <laughs> excuse me, Brian. I didn't really mean to do that. I'm just, uh, this is our first call. So, here we go. I'm calling you now, Brian. So, let's hope this works. And uh, Brian Brian has a uh, an excellent uh, website full of all the drug statistics that you uh, need to know. So, we'll ask him about that phone is ringing. Come on, Brian, put down the bong. <clears throat> okay, Brian. Hello. Ah, Brian. Yes, sir. Hey, Daniel Williams here. Welcome to the Opium Den. How you doing, my friend? I'm doing all right, Daniel. How you doing? Well, I'm doing well, thank you. I, this is our first show, so we're not uh, not as smooth as we like, but at least we're still on the air and uh, and cooking. So I, I mentioned oh, that uh, I mentioned that you have a uh, uh, an excellent website. So uh, please uh, tell our listeners what that uh, web address is, and then we'll get into your comment. Oh, okay. My website can be uh, accessed through either www.briancbennett.com, two N's and two T's in Bennett, or via HTTP colon slash slash www.drugwarstats.com. Or if you uh, feel like you just go to Google and type in the three words, anti-drug war, um, number one. Well, it's always nice to be number one, Brian. And I know that you yeah, have uh, particular viewpoints. You're one of the more um, uh, forceful advocates of uh, total repeal and uh, not working on the incremental standpoint. So uh, please tell our listeners uh, why, uh, why you think that's the best way to go. Well, basically, it boils down to the idea that we've actually been trying the incremental approach, not just for the past three decades, but for the past century. Uh, drugs were made incrementally illegal, and then one drug, alcohol, was re-legalized. So we tried the incremental approach. We saw that it didn't destroy mankind, and now we have the advantage of time having passed. We can see that there are a variety of things that people enjoy doing to themselves, and for the mo- most users of any drug, uh, they do it without getting themselves into any trouble or harming anyone else. So uh, while Rick is, is really properly concerned that uh, certainly things like this can blow up in your face if you don't do them correctly, I think that uh, we, we have tremendous advantages now that we didn't have back in the 60s. And it's time for the people to understand. Rick asked how in the world they get people to understand all this stuff. Well, one way that you do that is through shows like yours, of course, where you're giving people a different opinion or, or a different way of looking at all these things. And through work like what I'm doing, which is to expose all of the truth that the government has uh, mind about this stuff. They've collected a lot of statistics. They put them on the uh, airwaves. They scare our parents and frighten the children and say that the world's going to fall apart because of all these evil drugs and the impacts that they have on our society. Uh, but it's the Wizard of Oz, and what I did with my site is pulled the curtain off and said, hey, here's their data. This is what it shows us. Uh, we're out of our minds. 
Well, so let me ask you no, this, Brian. Do you no. uh, let me ask you this? Do you think that uh, we have studied the issue to death, and now it's time to uh, to to make some decisions and change policy? Or uh, I know you don't believe that Truly, we need further studies, but uh, what do you think? Truly, I do believe that we we have enough. I mean, the, the bottom line on all of this stuff, and Rick touched on it too, is that it's cognitive liberty. If you don't have the absolute right to touch yourself, <laughs> you have no rights. Period. And what we've got now uh, basically is the advantage that we've watched as the extremists control the dialogue about drugs in our country, uh, basically via the quote-unquote hippies versus the quote-unquote establishment. Then the academics took over. And, you know, sure, you can go out and do academic studies and release your results and get some positive feedback in the media about that. Uh, But that's a two-edged sword like everything else. There are well over 40,000, and I think I even read a number recently that there were at least 60,000 quote-unquote scientific studies that have been done on marijuana. Well, how many do you need to do to get it legalized? 100,000? What else do you hope to find out other than that it really doesn't cause many people many problems at all? So let's stop fooling around. Let's do some real change. Let's hold Obama's feet to the fire and say, hey, if you want to pull off some real change in the world, Let's act like we believe all that crap we wrote in the Constitution. If the Declaration said we're all created equal, and that's the reason that we're here, and the Constitution is the rules for how you do it, somebody point to me in the Constitution where I said, you know what, I'm too damn stupid to make my own decisions in life. I need somebody else to tell me what to do, and by gosh, if I do something that you don't like to myself, by all means, punish me for it. It's crazy, and to put up with that, particularly at this point in our history, is is worse than absurd. It's criminal. We we have people dying out there, being killed by our very own government in the name of preventing them from harming themselves. I don't think we need to do any more academic studies. Well, I I, want to ask uh, another question here, and I touched upon this uh, with Rick, and I I talk about it with most of our uh, drug policy uh, reform leaders. Uh, do you think that we uh, we run the risk um, of by focusing uh, too much on the or almost solely on the uh, medicinal value of pot and or other drugs that uh, if we are able to, uh, let's say, medical marijuana becomes the law of the land, do you believe that uh, uh, we will be able to move forward, move past that and uh, make uh, just general use of marijuana the uh, the law of the land, or do you think that we'll be trapped in this uh, medicinal viewpoint or, or ideology and that everybody who wants to smoke pot or do MDMA or LSD or whatever drug is out there on the, on the controlled substance list, that we will have to uh, feign some type of, of illness, lie to our doctors essentially, uh, to, to get these drugs? What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, actually, the, the, the medical route to me is uh, absurd. I, I'm not trying to denigrate anyone who gets medical ba- value from various substances. They certainly have those properties to them. But to assume that the way to go about this is to incrementally try to get another medical marijuana state, and then you know someday we'll all reach the holy land, and by God we'll have medical or uh, recreational marijuana available to us. Well, I've been waiting 40 years for that to happen. And the reason I started doing what I'm doing is because I got tired of waiting. The folks that are trying to hold us back on this are not paying attention. We already can get medical 
uh, OxyContin, opiates of every kind. You can get medical cocaine. You can get medical where? methamphetamine. I'm just kidding. Uh, for, from your doctor. Yeah, I yeah where? I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't have an answer for that one, Daniel. Well, I, I don't mean to sound flippant or anything, but uh, you know, one of one of our positions here at the Opium Den is that yes, all of the uh, all of the drugs that are currently illegal and listed in the Controlled Substances Act. Uh, they have uh, both medicinal and uh, recreational value, and that's been the case uh, throughout the uh, throughout the ages. And part of that, uh, part of what I'm trying to do here is to um, not expose or explore, but just create a greater awareness of the recreational value of uh, of these uh, substances. We have, for as you mentioned, for 40 years, been under the thumb of a very intense uh, prohibition enforcement, and we've been—they've uh, tried to, you know, make the country believe that people who do drugs are, you know, the dregs of the earth and, uh, you know, second-class citizens. So I'm just—I just think that uh, what we want to do here in the Opium Den is is not celebrate the the recreational use of drugs, although we may on on occasion do that. But uh, to quit apologizing for getting high. I mean, there's just no reason, no rhyme or reason that uh, we should feel um, uh, less than uh, full members of society. So we may be a little flippant, flippant at times, but we do want to, uh, as, as for principle, we want to stand up for all the, you know, the tens of millions of Americans out there who uh, do recreational drugs responsibly um, and enjoy them. So uh, that's my little soapbox, and I want to give you the, the last word, Brian, before we get back into the final segment of our interview with uh, Dr. Rick Doblin. So shoot away, brother. Well, I appreciate getting the last word, Dan. Uh, all I can say is that uh, there are 6 billion people on the planet. Every one of us is different. And if we think that it's a wise thing to allow groups of people to gang up on other groups, who do things that they don't like, but who do those things to themselves, uh, well, we're not long for the world anymore. Right? There, there's no room to run. There's nowhere to hide. Drugs are here. Human beings like drugs. Drugs are good. Um, I, I will champion drugs. Uh, I don't think that every drug is for everybody, but I think that making your own choices is for everybody. And the reason that I'm so adamant about that, I guess, is because I spent 30 years of my life working directly on defending the rights of American people uh, via my service to Uncle Sam. So I'm pissed. I want my dope, and I want it now. I want to walk into a pot store. In fact, I want to own my own pot store and sell nothing but the best quality cannabis products that you can find. And we're not going to get there by getting another medical marijuana state or a needle exchange in Newark. So lead, follow, or get the fuck out of the way. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, tell us what you really think, Brian. No, I, I'm, yeah, really. I'm, I'm just kidding there. And before I let you go, just tell us, tell everybody one more time how to uh, access you on Google. Uh, three words, anti-drug war. In fact, you can put them together in various combinations. You'll still find my site. Well, very good, Brian. I certainly appreciate your uh, taking the time to, to speak with us tonight. I think it was a uh, it was a good thing. So uh, sit back and uh, light one up, and we're going to do the – uh, the last segment of our interview with uh, Rick Doblin. Thanks again, Brian. My pleasure, Daniel. Thank you. Bye now. Bye. Okay, well, uh, Dan, uh, my 
technical guru tells, tells me that we're still, uh, still broadcasting live. I hope everybody is still with us. We're getting comments coming in. So what we're going to do now is play the, uh, the final installment of our uh, interview earlier today with Rick Doblin. So again, I apologize for the, uh, the way the edit is, but um, it's our first show, folks. So here we go, the, uh, the last segment of our interview with Dr. Rick Doblin, founder of MAPS. Here we go. So what I'm thinking is that the, the work that we do, and this is why, why do you think medical marijuana is so frightening to the DEA and so frightening to the National Institute on Drug Abuse and to the sort of proponents of the drug war? It's because medical marijuana and the research into marijuana will contribute to delegitimizing the exaggerated risks that the government has been putting out about marijuana for decades and decades. Well, I think so that, that I think the, a, a significant uh, portion of the public uh, doesn't buy into that anymore, and they look at marijuana not as a as a harmless drug and or uh, a medicinal drug, but I think that they have uh, begun in the past uh, ten years, at least in my reckoning, they have begun to um, accept that uh, what basically you and I and many others have been saying all along that marijuana is not. Uh, this this terrible drug that uh, turns everybody into mass murderers, and they're uh, they're no longer buying into the partnership for the drug for America at ONDCP and others who, who put that out. <laughs> yeah, it's hilarious that you say that because I the I just prepared a, a a fundraising package to a man who's been giving large amounts of money to the partnership for drug free America, and I was uh, I that's what I spent a lot of today was showing how the partnership has presented misleading information about the brain-damaging effects of MDMA. Well, without, without question, I, I attended the 20th anniversary gala celebration for the Partnership for a Drug for America in New York back in 2006. I was the only guy there with an opposing view, but uh, what I found, uh, I found two things uh, quite surreal. Uh, again, Partnership for a Drug for America, they had an open bar uh, for an hour and a half before the dinner, and the booze fro- flowed freely during the dinner. And the second thing I found unusual is that the man of the year that they chose that best uh, personified the message of the Partnership for a Drug for America was Bud Seeley, the commissioner of Major League Baseball, who was at the time <laughs> embroiled in the steroid scandal. So I think that a lot of these, these organizations, uh, whether it be government or private organizations funded by the government. I believe they're paper tigers, and it's time for us to to stand up to them and call their bluff, grab them by the lapels or the blouse collars and shake them and say, you know what, you're fucking crazy. You're wrong, and well, I think it's you're time right. to stand and, down. But, but I, think, I think the key is to put yourself in the position of um, the people who disagree with you. And that, that's where MDMA is of it. MDMA helps you to listen to the other side. The, the shadow side of yourself and the other side. So and you recommend we, we, all, we, to, we, we, we get all of these uh, drug warriors and drug propagandists and put them in a room and, and give them MDMA enemas and sit around and hug and no, kiss and walk no. out and get better? No, no. I think, you know, our fundamental principle is that people should have free choice about what they put into their bodies and that, we should have a choice to say yes or no, and that we shouldn't force it on anybody. 
and that if they don't want to do it, that's you know that's their choice. Well, I agree. We should, could, uh, it, we should not force yeah. it upon anyone, but they should not force their ideology on us and and uh, prohibit us from doing the things that we uh, that we feel is right. Well, so they, they should not, but they are. So we live in a massive police state with a you know a system of prohibition that is becoming slightly less cruel. That people are starting to wake up. And so there's several different tracks. So there's the spiritual track. There's thousands of years of history for peyote, for mushrooms, for drugs like LSD, Edelusis, that these substances, psychedelic substances for ayahuasca, for, um, the jungle, for ibogaine from Africa, that psychedelics have been used for thousands of years and have been integrated into cultures in very successful ways. And those cultures tended to be um, healthier. And that we have a similar vision, that, that we need to develop a culture that is not so freaked out by psychedelics, that, that provides an opportunity that integrates the option of psychedelics. So the, the approach that I think is going to happen is that, you know, the Supreme Court a couple of years ago ruled in favor of an ayahuasca church. They've ruled in favor of the Native American church use of peyote. You know, there there is a little bit more growing understanding, particularly ayahuasca has had a major effect, a lot of underground ayahuasca use in the United States outside of these churches. And people are starting to understand that for religious purposes, it's, you know, people normally, uh, you know, high-functioning people in society, not only, but, you know, many, and that they're able to use these drugs to their benefit for personal growth and make contributions to society and keep with their families and keep in their jobs and keep in their, you know, houses of worship and go to the PTA meetings that you can integrate successfully the use of psychedelics and drugs throughout a lifespan with what from the outside looks like a pretty traditional life. Well, I, I agree. Uh, I mean, I've been using LSD for uh, 40 years now and, uh, I found it to be uh, a very uh, a very helpful uh, substance in uh, informing my worldview and, and and keeping me right. And what uh, what I'd like to just get to one last uh, uh, question for you is that um, or one comment that you can uh, speak to. Uh, recent polls have shown that 76 percent of American adults uh, believe the drug war has failed. Now it's true that a a number of them believe that uh, we're just not trying hard enough, but a significant majority uh, believe that we should uh, uh, create a regulated market uh, for these drugs, uh, similar to what we have for alcohol and tobacco. So I believe that uh, that our country is moving towards at least the understanding yeah. of prohibition being wrong. They may not understand the actual drugs themselves, but they're getting to the, they're getting the idea that prohibition is wrong. So. Alongside your very important uh, clinical trials with MDMA, ibogaine, um, LSD, what what do you think the the, the non medical community should do to to uh, help emphasize this and feed off this seventy six percent of the people who are beginning to be uh, to realize the drug war is wrong? Well, I'd say you know my, the key point is incremental change. Don't get impatient. Work with people's fears. Try to understand the fears. Why did prohibition end? What brought about the end of prohibition? Part of it was broke. the depression. I mean, Part of it was the depression. Alcohol but... prohibition ended because uh, primarily we were broke and the government uh, 
needed the tax revenues, and that's why I'm excited. Well, not now. really. I, I mean, I, no? I think that it was the violence associated with the prohibition just got out of hand. The glamorization of um, Al Capone, the gangsters, the speakeasies, the widespread disrespect for law. But the group that was responsible for bringing prohibition, largely, you know, Women's Christian Temperance Union, right. was replaced at the end of prohibition by women's groups who felt that their children were more in danger from prohibition than from alcohol. You know, now we have it where if you get arrested um, in possession of marijuana, sometimes you, if you're a young kid, you can't get student loans. Right. You're, you're, you get a criminal record, just hard time to get, you know, jobs. So that what we're, what we really need is families. The right, once we see, and we're, we're coming closer to there, but we're not there yet. And it'll probably take another 10 or 15 years. But once we see families, particularly mothers, say that this, you know, my child smoking pot and you know, it's, it's more dangerous for for him or her to run into the police and get a record and go to jail or, than it is for them to smoke pot. And that when you keep it underground, you can't teach successfully harm reduction. And the information that's put out is biased in order to keep it. So what I'm saying is that as a society, we will be trying to work on the embedded fear about these drugs as one-way tickets to destruction. General Barry McCaffrey, who was the drug czar, yeah, under Clinton him too. for a while. <laughs> um, you know, he, he was. Uh, I was at a seminar with him just the other day. Oh, and he was saying how much progress he's made. That that they don't talk about, you know, the war on drugs anymore. He, he thinks the war is a terrible metaphor. For him, a better metaphor is cancer. Drugs are cancer. <laughs> and well, give me I cancer, just Jesus. Email. Give me cancer. You know. Well, I said it's actually it's more like allergies. You know, the cancer analogy is not right because that implies that everybody's getting hurt who uses drugs. It's just a matter of degree because it's a fundamental poison. But if you think about it as allergies, like peanut allergies or aspirin allergies, substances will knock off, kill some people, but in general, most people can do them fine. And if we think about it that way, and if we start acknowledging the benefits, and from the 60s, we still have this idea that you do drugs, you drop out of society. You do drugs, you reject the values of society. And that there's this whole social split. So there's still just a lot of this fighting the battles of the 60s. Symbolic politics. And that's where Obama is sort of out of that. He's not a baby boomer. He's uh, from that kind of, you know, 60s generation. So I think that we will have, eventually, um, therapeutic use of psychedelics. I should point out, though, that the, the situation with marijuana, ironically, is that we are making more progress with scientific research into the therapeutic use of psychedelics, even LSD, than we are with marijuana. And the reason is because the government, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, has a monopoly on the supply of marijuana that you can use in research. We have our own independent sources of LSD, MDMA, psilocybin, all these other drugs. The, the NIDA has a monopoly only on marijuana. And if you want to make it into a medicine, they make it very difficult for you to get it. They delay and delay and delay, and they have terrible quality, and you need your own independent source of supply. So as long as the government has a monopoly on marijuana, we're not going to – No, there hasn't been a single privately funded study into the therapeutic use of marijuana in over 40 years. So we're trying to do that. MAPS is the 
organization that has, for the last, since 2001, with Professor Lyle Craker at UMass Amherst, we've tried to break the government monopoly. And a lot of things are coming to a head. Um, we wanted administrative law judge recommendations to the DEA in February 2007. And it was one of the last things the Bush administration, the DEA under Bush, did before they uh, flunk out of office on uh, January 14th is that they rejected, after doing nothing for two years, they rejected the application of the, the recommendation of the DEA administrative law judge that it would be in the public interest for us to get permission to have our own marijuana production facility, and then we'd work just with FDA. So we're trying. The Obama administration has said that they will stop the raids in medical marijuana states, the DEA federal raids going in there. Whether they will permit research to start is the big frontier for medical marijuana. And actually, Monday, the DEA lawyers submit their final response to our briefs. And on May 1, the final ruling of the DEA rejecting the recommendation to give us a license goes into effect unless we either get a new hearing or the Obama administration convinces the DEA to just reverse it. But there is about to be a new drug czar. There's new people at the Department of Justice, but it's still the Bush holdovers at DEA. There's not a new head of the DEA yet. So we're in a race for time. But what will be happening is that more and more states are going to be passing medical marijuana laws because they know that the federal system is hopelessly blocked. People see other people benefiting from marijuana. The public is getting educated. So we're moving in the right direction. The support for legalization of marijuana is up to like 40%. It's been climbing about one point a year for the last uh, 15, 20 years. And it, it gets you know even higher in places like California. But we've got a long way to go. So I think that we need to really focus on doing the best we can with the medical use, wherever we can, to do the research, to deal with the fears, to, sh to, to replace the fears with hopes. That's why the, we have one track that we've talked about, which is MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder. But we have a whole other track of research, which is psychedelics to help people at the end of life who are scared of death. So it's everybody. It's anxiety associated with end-of-life issues. And that, that's how we were able to start the first study of LSD therapeutic use in over 35 years. That's in Switzerland with end-of-life issues. That's how we were able to start the first psychedelic research at Harvard since Leary got kicked out in 63, and a student of his stayed till 66, and 66 was the last psychedelic research at Harvard. So we've just recently helped start a study with MDMA for cancer patients, advanced-stage cancer patients with anxiety. Well, I and think there's psilocybin studies. I think there's a, a tremendous amount of, of medicinal value to virtually every drug that is traditionally considered recreational. And before we close out, because we're getting close to the end of the hour, and I again, I want to thank you for, for talking with us and enlightening us with all of what's going on in your world. My question and my final question is this. You mentioned uh, President Obama. He has said that we need to look at science and not ideology, yeah. and he has made a, a number of very positive rhetorical statements with regards to uh, drugs and the drug war, but yet we're still having difficulties in uh, states that have medical marijuana laws on their books. And uh, President Obama in that town hall meeting, uh, you know, made a very uh, 
nasty, snarky re remark about the online community and, and marijuana smokers in general, and they did a tremendous amount of work putting him in the White House. Do you think that he has jeopardized a lot of his following by by being dismissive and uh, toward, no, not towards at all. no, not not at all. I mean, I think that uh, you know, I was watching that press conference and you know the internet press conference, and it was about the economy, and it was really good that the marijuana advocates got so many people to to comment about that. But you know, he was asked, "Will marijuana help solve the financial crisis?" He he should have said. Um, it's probably about $15 billion a year if we legalize with tax revenue and offset criminal justice system expenditures. And while $15 billion is nowhere near what we need for our health of our economic system, it's not nothing. You know, instead, he said, no, it won't help. So, but you have to realize is that McCain got like a lot of votes. You know, it just, just was not, not a landslide. Just not enough. It was, just not enough. So there's a lot of issues he's got. You know, the, he has come out and he has said um, he's stopping the DEA raids on medical marijuana states. He's going to leave that to the state. The, the key issue for him in, in um, you know, he's against, so he's been supportive of some of these changes, like the Rockefeller laws going down, the mandatory minimum. Uh, yeah, but, but for a guy who has admitted to smoking marijuana and snorting cocaine, Obviously, he must understand when he looks at himself in the mirror that that, that activity did not uh, retard his, his, his uh, intellectual growth or keep him from being elected president of the United States. But had he been caught doing those drugs back in his younger days, there's absolutely no question that he would, uh, be where he, he would not be where he is now. So there, to me, I, I see a, a certain hypocrisy with with no, no. When, I think, when it comes I think that I, okay. What I see in you is a certain impatience. Um, you know, I, I'm well, going yeah, back. I'm to 59 Israel. years old. <laughs> okay, I'm going back to Israel uh, in a week. I'm going to be meeting with the uh, Minister of Health and various people about their medical marijuana program. And one of the people I'm meeting with is always joking about, well, how's the Messiah doing? Meaning Obama. Right. You know, so he's just barely in office. It, you know, he did not win in a massive landslide, and he's making changes. So I think we need to give him some time, and the signals are right. But in terms of drug policy, the, the big question is going to be, um, will the Obama administration overrule the last-minute efforts of the Bush DEA to block medical marijuana research? Well, let's hope he does. And, I, and, and we will see. And, and I think that... Um, you know, drug policy is not his top priority. Um, but, you know, he, he's not, um, spouting the rhetoric of culture war. Um, I, I think that, um, well, there's a great story. Maybe we can end it like this. There's a great story of Franklin Roosevelt where a bunch of people go talk to him about an issue, try to persuade him. And he says, um, all right, you know, I agree with you. Now go out and make me do it. You know, go out and build the constituency that is so strong that, you know, you force me to do it. Well, I think that, that you constituency, give me political, I think that constituency, give me political uh, cover. Yeah, well, I think the political cover actually exists now. The constituency that uh, made uh, 
removing the prohibitions against marijuana, his top question on uh, you know, government.org when he asked everyone, I think the constituency is saying, you know, is trying to force his hand, and I'm just hoping that uh, he has the intelligence and the compassion and the humanity to to understand that we are uh, making that plea and, and having very high hopes, I guess is the proper term, high hopes that he'll uh, listen to us and make some changes. So well, I'm going to give you, I'll give you the last of, two minutes, Rick, and we'll, we'll close okay. out from there. Well, you know, the idea of science over ideology, that's the repudiation of the whole Bush doctrine of, you know, we're going to cram stuff down your throats, and if uh, the science gets in the way, we're going to squash the science. So I, I think that, though, we have to make a case. We in the, the community that sees that prohibition is counterproductive and that there are great benefits when these drugs are used wisely. We have to respond to the fears of parents. We have to respond to the existence of massive uh, misinformation about the risks of these drugs. And we have to show that we can lead mainstream lives and that these drugs can help people lead the, whatever kind of lives they want to. And I think we have to be uh, thinking in terms of, uh, you know, 20-year plans. And at the same time, you know, the impatience that, that you're exhibiting is good. It's, it's like a fundamental sense of outrage. It's a sense of injustice. But that we have to be willing to let people back down from their positions slowly and gradually. And you push too fast and you get uh, people hardened in their positions and you end up taking longer. Well, that, that, uh, that could very well be true, and it's it's going to be the efforts of of people like you and others that uh, are going to help that to become a reality. So I want to and you too for you know bringing this to the attention of your listeners. Well, I hope they enjoyed it. I certainly did. It was great speaking with you again. Yeah. And let me just say that sure. if anybody wants to check out our website, mapsmaps.org, we're in dire need of new members. Um, membership is. Uh, available through the website. We also have a free email update that goes out once a month about our projects. We have um, our MAPS bulletins. This issue is a, uh, coming out a couple times a year. This is a special themed issue on um, psychedelics and ecology. So it gets back to this sort of psychedelic mystical experience and how that leads to uh, trying to find a better harmony with nature. And, you know, our studies are not supported by the government yet. They're not supported by the pharmaceutical industry. They're not supported yet by the major foundations. Uh, they're just supported by individuals who care. And so, you know, joining MAPS and other organizations uh, helps empower us. And so we, we couldn't do it without our, um, in combination with, uh, we have about 1,500 members. You know, about 20 of them give most of the money. <laughs> um, so I just want to encourage people to check out our website and, um, if anybody wants to write to me, I'm at rick at maps.org. I'm kind of you know, swimming in email, so it might take me a while. Well, but, I, um, I, uh, I made a point uh, at the top of the hour uh, introducing uh, you as our uh, special guest this evening. I made a point of discussing maps. It's the number one link on the opiumden.net website. And okay. uh, we hope that everybody enjoyed uh, speaking with you this evening. I know I did. And... Uh, Again, thank you very much, Rick, and have a very nice evening. Yeah, and I, I look forward to one day uh, having this conversation when uh, opium's legal. <laughs> well, <laughs> you and me both, brother. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> and I hope we haven't scared off a bunch of people by saying that. No, I don't think so. I, so I, I think uh, 
I think you'd be surprised at the number of people out there who, uh, whether they do recreational drugs or not, and there's probably 40 million or so that do, there are a, a significant number of people who do not that are uh, lessening their their uh, objections and overcoming their fears. And uh, we just hope that, from my perspective, I hope we can accelerate that and, and uh, keep moving forward as opposed to uh, in reverse. Yes, that is, uh, I, that's a great sentiment. Okay, Rick, thanks again, and shalom. Right, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now. Well, uh, there you have it, um, an hour conversation with uh, Dr. Rick Dovlin. I hope you found it as interesting and as enlightening as I did. I think uh, Rick makes some very valid points. Uh, we do have uh, slight, uh, slight uh, differences of opinion on uh, how fast uh, we should move forward with uh, with repealing some of these uh, or all of these uh, silly prohibitions, but uh, that's what the uh, the the whole thing's about. Uh, hearing as many um, viewpoints as possible that uh, that speak to to uh, my audience, speak to me, and I hope speak to you about um, ending uh, a lot of this uh, this silliness. So we have. Um, one uh, one comment came in during the last uh, the last portion, and it's a, it's a repeat customer, as they say. This is uh, Chris again from uh, Virginia Tech, and uh, Chris has a uh, question that's a little bit off topic, at least for tonight's topic, but I think it's uh, uh, very important and, uh, and and timely to the overall issue of drug prohibition. and And Chris writes in. Um, if Biden's daughter, Vice President Biden, if Biden's daughter did use cocaine, do you think that will affect Vice, President's Biden, Vice President Biden's drug war stance, or you do think he'll pull a Cheney? And uh, by pulling a Cheney, I believe uh, Chris is referencing um, uh, Dick Cheney's daughter when uh, she came out as a lesbian that uh, did not uh, change uh, Dick Cheney's policy on, uh, on homosexuality. So I think what Chris is asking is that uh, uh, will Vice President Biden, uh, who, by the way, is the man who coined the term uh, drug czar, uh, do, uh, do, you, do we believe that um, that will cause a, uh, uh, an epiphany with Vice President Biden and he'll... Um, look at the issue differently. So I don't know what anyone else uh, feels about that, but I do not believe that um, the issue of uh, Vice President Biden's daughter doing cocaine, and by the way, that, uh, that one was swept under the rug pretty quickly, uh, if you followed that story. So I don't believe that um, uh, Vice President Biden will uh, change his uh, policy on on uh, drug prohibition. We've had politicians for the past 40 years, uh, influential politicians whose children have been um, arrested for drug possession, and that did not uh, change uh, the views of the politicians, although almost uh, to, a, to, a, uh, to, a, to a man and woman, uh, their children uh, did not suffer the same uh, legal uh, consequences as a uh, someone uh, 
a normal person being arrested for drugs who didn't have an influential or uh, rich parent. So I think it exposes um, Vice President Biden's hypocrisy on, uh, on various levels. And before we close out tonight, I want to thank everyone uh, for tuning in. And uh, if you have friends that might have been uh, interested in hearing this but uh, couldn't make it, I want to remind everyone that uh, this show will be archived and available for anyone to download and listen to. And we're also going to upload it to iTunes so it can be, uh, can be downloaded in that fashion. Um, uh, one, uh, I guess one other question, or not question, but one other comment I wanted to make, which relates back to the vice presidential, or vice presidential, or vice president Biden's daughter. My tongue's a little tired here, getting late. Um, I think it's interesting that uh, the new, uh, the nominee for um, drug czar is uh, uh, Mr. Kurlikowski from uh, Seattle, Washington. He's the police chief that. Uh, that came into office uh, after Norm Stampler, one of the uh, founding members and uh, better voices for law enforcement against prohibition. Uh, Mr. Kurlikowski has a stepson who um, did time for drug possession and a few other crimes that, in my mind, are far more serious than anything uh, drug-related. And uh, his son did time, and now he's back in a uh, Miami area jail for violating his parole. So I'm hoping that um, that will have an impact uh, on Mr. Kurlikowski. And if it does not, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm hopeful again that during the confirmation hearings for Mr. Kurlikowski, that uh, will be brought to light. And one other thing, if uh, President Obama is uh, doing some uh, Trojan horsing with uh, the issue of drugs and like FDR, you know, forced me to do it. Um, perhaps then um, he can uh, instruct Mr. Kurlikowski to make himself available to some of the drug policy groups and conferences and uh, publicly uh, defend the government's position. Um, up until now, the uh, the government and uh, organizations that support prohibition have been uh, very reluctant to allow any uh, spokespeople to address uh, the uh, the drug policy reform groups. So maybe Mr. Obama will uh, allow uh, Mr. Kurlikowski, if he is confirmed, uh, maybe will he will allow him uh, greater access or allow greater access to Mr. Kurlikowski by those of us in drug policy reform. So we're going to sign off now. Um, again, this is our first show. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Uh, we'll try to get some of the static out next week and, and uh, move on from there. Our special guest next week is Alan St. Pierre, who is the executive director of Normal. So we're going to talk about pot we're going to talk about the uh, recreational use more so than the medicinal use because I find it uh, very refreshing that uh, normal makes no distinction in their advocacy between uh, medicinal use or recreational use. They believe that everyone should have access to uh, cannabis. So that should be a very good show. Again, uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll try to uh, get the static out, as I mentioned, for next week. I hope it came through loud and clear. 
And to, um, to everyone uh, out there, um, thank you very much. Oops, we have one more. Ah, there it is. So um, just a friend of mine saying, uh, way to go. So that's what friends are for. So thank you very much again, and we're going to sign off. This is Daniel Williams, and you've been inside the Opium Den. Thank you very much.